Today on the Learn It, Use It podcast, operations management takes flight. The training piece on this human machine interface, which is changing so dramatically, because Skydio's an example, I could never avoid obstacles manually, like it, like the AI does in that platform. Right? But but I have to monitor and talk a little bit about how you get some critical thinking skills going. Well, apart from the human factor side of it, um, we're working with the University of Arkansas to work on how can we incorporate some of those uh, soft skills, like being in a team environment, communication skills, because a lot of times you're going out there flying a drone by yourself and taking those residential photos, but now you're going to be doing that in a crew environment, and then um, also communication, leadership, and, um, and safety. This podcast is by the Operations Management and Engineering Management Programs in the College of Engineering at the University of Arkansas. In our programs, we stand by Learn It Today, Use It Tomorrow. The instructors for our courses are professionals with real-world experience where you will be able to immediately apply what you have learned. Today's workforce is changing rapidly and all fields require adapting to new environments, which means you need new credentials quickly to improve your current performance. Our graduate programs and certificates apply to all industries so you can be competitive in today's workforce. In this episode, Dr. Rich Ham, Associate Director in the Operations Management and Engineering Management Graduate Programs at the University of Arkansas, speaks with Grant Brewer, Manager of Community and Workforce Development at DroneUp, and Chris Fink, Founder and CEO of Unmanned Vehicle Technologies, or otherwise known as UVT. All right, welcome uh, to, I think this is our sixth edition, our sixth uh, podcast we've been doing for uh, the Master of Science and Operations Management, Master of Science and Engineering Management programs. We have a unique program uh, today and two guests that I think are going to give you some really interesting perspectives. We're going to give you a little bit different view and look uh, in the way that operations management specifically has grown in the advanced air mobility and smart mobility space, and in particular, some of the things, you know, the normal things we talk about, the 10 OM decisions, we talk about layout, location, those sorts of things. Those are all important to uh, uh, both of our guests today, but they also have some unique uh, perspectives in advanced air mobility that are kind of new things, uh, things about how we engage community. So the first uh, that I'll introduce, and I'll go from the left over, is uh, Grant Brewer. And uh, Grant is with Drone Up, and uh, just recently promoted to the manager of community and workforce development. Is that right? That's correct. And so he's going to give us a perspective of uh, things. And so, and and Drone Up, you know, I guess you'd say they're a startup, but they're they're growing a pretty rapidly growing uh, startup. And then next to me, I have uh, right to my left is uh, Chris Fink. Chris Fink is the owner, CEO, and bottle washer for Unmanned Vehicle Technologies, and so he, uh, it, you know, is a specialty service provider, uh, vendor, dealer, etc., not just in advanced air mobility, but also things uh, on the ground, you know, cool robots and, and the sort, uh, you know, that look like dogs and everybody is excited about. But both of them have a perspective that I think uh, is interesting to to learn. So let's start. Grant, tell us a little bit about yourself and back your background, kind of what Drone Up is about, and then you know what you do uh, for Drone. So a little bit about my background. Uh, I'm obviously I started off in like the new uh, promotion I just recently got hot hot off the press today. Um, I was our collegiate training liaison, so that's a fancy title for working with high schools and colleges for STEM and uh, UAS outreach across the country. Um, right now, my promotion and change and shift in title and, and role, what I'm doing now, is going to be working with our in community and workforce development, which. Uh, collegiate liaison was a big part of that, but really looking at workforce development from the top down and how we're working with high schools and really just ultimately with high schools and colleges and leading to jobs. Um, with a new shift and uh, definitely what this conversation is related to is uh, focus on communities, uh, gaining that um, buy-in from local communities. I mean, working with HOAs uh, in different areas, also looking with like our local heroes, working with um, fire departments, police departments, making sure we're all sharing the airspace. Um, we know here in Northwest Arkansas, we're close with Pinnacle Hills. We're close to the Mercy um, Hospital that's there and sharing the airspace with uh, 
MetaFlights and uh, different um, uh, helicopters coming in for um, things like that. So making sure we're sharing the airspace with that. Uh, but uh, my background has been in education for the last 18 years. Um, I worked at uh, colleges and admissions recruiting and then um, worked in um, secondary education for the past eight years. Got to help set up drones, um, the UAS program of study for CTE in the state of Arkansas. That's where I actually met both of y'all, connected through different re reasons. I think the drones we bought for our class, we got from UVT uh, in Fayetteville. And then uh, Dr. Ham met you uh, for the, the drone summit you were hosting at the University of Arkansas. So uh, it's kind of all coming full circle now, working uh, in education and drones. And now we always want to align not just operations management, but want to align career and technical education with industry partners. And now I get to be an industry partner and go into classrooms across the country and, and help tell what we need and what we're looking for with the workforce. Okay. Chris, so got to do the same thing for us about UVT. Yeah. Tell us about the, the company's humble beginnings and where you are now. Sure, yeah. Well, you, you nailed it with bottle washer, so I'll go ahead and see myself out. No, well, yeah, founder and CEO of, of UVT, so started the company in 2014. You know, back then, drones were kind of a, a smoke and mirror. Nobody really knew what they were. The FAA hadn't even recognized that they were a thing to consider. Uh, got started in the construction progression service world. What that means is basically I'd go out, you know, deploy my drone, fly it. I, we had no gimbals. We had no nothing. It was just fixed mounted. So take some photos of construction sites, and then over time, you know, gather that data, right, so you can see how a, a, a project will progress, um, you know, critical milestones, things like that. Quickly realize that that's not really, you know, for me necessarily. I really wanted to dive deep into the hardware of the software. How do you use it? How do you support it? How do you deploy it? What do you do with that data? Uh, and so we are now what the industry considers a value-added reseller. So Grant mentioned bringing it full circle. That's what we do every single day. We bring in experts from the hardware side, the software side, the services side. We, we then serve as your single point of contact for, for all of that, whether that's consulting on ground robotics, aerial, water, et cetera. Uh, we bring all that together and deliver it as a, either as a service or a product or a purchase for our customers, like University of Arkansas, local schools. Public safety is our biggest base. Uh, so I've got background as a first responder, as a dispatcher, volunteer firefighter. So that's kind of where we found our foothold. Um, we also support electric co-ops, locally Ozarks Electric, Arkansas Valley, Carroll Electric, um, and then local police departments, Springfield, Washington County, things like that. So we bring together all the technology, all the services, all the training, and that way our customers aren't out there having to do that themselves, spending hours and hours of time and too much money on, on product. Yeah, so those are both, so both of you have, I know, fast-moving jobs and always feels, you know, there's always, you hear people talk about, uh, I don't guess you classify yourself as a startup, but, yeah, yeah, there's no clear definition. Sure. I mean, we've been doing it for yeah. you know, almost a decade uh, now. So but, know. you know, you find yourself over time having to make organizational and strategic decisions, right, like grown-up does. So as you scale up, you can't operate the same way as you did, you know, when there were 20 employees. And now you got 300 and 400 employees when yeah. you had grown-up. When you look at us, I mean, we started with one employee, and now I've got 23. So talk about operational right. challenges and how do you manage that and not, not allow these silos to grow. We were just talking to our friends there at lunch and, you know, how do you, how do you prevent those silos of information from happening, even from one to 20 people, not to mention 20 yeah. to hundreds of people? Same yeah. struggle, just a lot smaller or bigger, you know, et cetera. Well, and the more technology you have, the more likely it is you develop silos, right? Because nobody can be an expert in everything, and so is an operations manager. So like with grown up. Yeah. So you're doing uh, making sure training, you know, works and those sorts of things and then community engagement, but what are the challenges that you deal with um, to make sure that those things, that that knowledge base is spread across everybody? Because technology changes all the time. In fact, aren't you getting ready to upgrade to a new platform? So, I mean, we're currently on our version two drone uh, right now. I mean, we're always looking to, I mean, to expand and change. I mean, so it's, it's coming um, right now. Um, I don't know the exact date where we're looking at it, but right now we're just trying to, Focus on our safety and standardization across the board to make sure, and that's one one of the things we're talking about, like communication and silos, is really looking at the standardization. I mean, I think that's the best way to, to put it to make sure that we're everybody's staying on the same page. Um, and I think we are still considered a startup. I mean, it's uh, I think we were founded in 2016. 
we we're trying to do a lot of different things, a lot of different enterprise services, and our and one of the things we're in the news right now is our biggest uh, thing is our partnership with Walmart and doing last mile drone delivery. Um, one of the quotes that has been said is um, we're trying to like boil the ocean and everything. So um, I think one of the things we're trying to do right now is we're taking an increased focus and focusing on our drone delivery and working on that right now and uh, trying to be the best we can at that. Um, <laughs> and it's funny when we were talking about uh, whenever we were chatting just before this about uh, operations management can be something as, as broad, broad as restaurants to large deals like J.B. Hunt and Walmart and Tyson, all those sort of things. But um, I just got back from vacation and one of the things I ran across was seeing in London, England, how many five guys there were. And it has really kind of hit me like just looking at like seeing like five guys just it's burgers and fries i mean it's it's something like that and like one of the things uh we've always talked about is you can't be everything to everyone but you can be something to someone and finding that one thing that you want to be for everybody so i I think that's a a big deal that we're really trying to focus on and really our uh, drone delivery aspect and uh, really narrowing the focus on our enterprise services but how we're going to be that one thing for for somebody well it's a pretty big change too in the enterprise piece because you do, it's kind of a brokerage service uh, at the same time you hire. Well, I think even that, we're kind of even stepping away from that a little bit. Um, uh, really, we're going to do some internal, I think, enterprise services, but not very many. Uh, we're going to focus more on delivery and our partnership with Walmart and other ways that we can focus on drone delivery for uh, different customers. Okay. So, Chris, one of the things that I've noticed, because I think when you and I met and you were, uh, you were first standing up, it was just you. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was me, just me for a while, and, yep, just me then. And now you, you know, hired several people, and, and you train them, but I noticed some, I was taking, uh, taking back some, because I was looking at how you, the, the layout of what you have, because the maintenance, you're doing uh, what, what some factory maintenance you're authorized to, and some, it yeah. depends on who, who the, who the uh, um, manufacturer is, but the layout decisions that you made, all pretty um, well thought out and the kind of things that you do so that people can sit at stations and do that kind of work. Where do, where do you come up with that sort of ideas? Well, you certainly, uh, well, first of all, thanks for the high praise from, from somebody like yourself in the <laughs> operations management space. I didn't know it was as good, but that's great. Um, yeah, you just kind of, you know, I, I've always said, you know, people see CEO in my title and they, they're like, oh, well, he's the CEO. He's, you know, He's this, he's that, but really, you gotta you gotta know the work that you're that you're asking your folks to do to set it up right. And I know that I've done tons of work on drones and repairs, and even swapping propellers. And if you're working in too small of a space, you're bumping other things. You just can't do quality work. So um, the main thing is understanding the products that you're working on, the tasks that you're tasking your folks to do, which in our case can be as you know detailed as a full teardown of a you know a large uh, medium or heavy lift aircraft, or as simple as replacing a motor arm. But you still need a proper workspace to do that. You still need easy access to tools. It needs to be safe, comfortable, all that kind of stuff. You know, to say that I thought about all that before I had that workbench built, I, I definitely did not. But um, I use that experience, you know, having done that work, to really lay it out and understand the stuff that we're working on and how we're going to be interfacing with it. So, uh, and the, I, I, I can't overemphasize what it means. So as a, so I've been a customer, uh, obviously for uh, UVT. And I'll bring this story up. We were I was doing a research project three three years ago or so. We we're out in the middle of nowhere in Northern California, you know, dry lake bed and using a six hundred and we needed some parts like right now. Primarily I won't say who was flying at the time, but we had a pretty catastrophic crash. And so to be fair, we were hanging real heavy stuff off of it, doing some research and testing out there. But anyway, and uh, we got it the next day. We called and got it. So the customer service, which is part of OM and the service piece, how you're perceived. As you know, the only person that gets to decide uh, how good your customer service is is the customer. Absolutely. And, <clears throat> and so the it, it's... You know, we have some really good instructors uh, in that course that, that talk about what you get for customer service. It's the same thing for, for drone. Mm-hmm. You know, you got these, uh, you know, Walmart's a customer, but the person that receives it yeah. is a customer, and there's a, a, an issue about perception for that. Talk to us up about um, 
if I'm not careful, I'll get into a, a lecture because I've taught aviation history several times, but uh, a, a little bit about the importance of customer service. And then after that, I'd like you to talk to Bonnie and Chris, but what it means to get co community um, acceptance and buy-in. When you're doing something this unique, uh, starting out. Well, to me, and I think one of the things is uh, obviously Walmart's a customer of DroneUp, and but also they're a partner with us as well too. And I think it uh, for DroneUp that I think it gives us an opportunity to um, kind of raise our standards as well too. I mean, Walmart is one of the is is the largest retailer in the world, and I think for us it gives us an opportunity that we want to be partnered with them and kind of have that same benchmark. So it knows we know that whenever we are doing delivery, that it is not just the delivery for DroneUp; it is delivery with Walmart. And we have that partnership there. So I think it gives us a lot of opportunity to, um, especially whenever we go in and um, we had the conversation. I was at one of the hubs the other day and we had the conversation of um, how we conduct ourselves. Even when we go in to go get um, items off the shelves, we want to conduct ourselves just as the same standards as all the Walmart employees and, and everything along those same lines as well, too, that we're not going to be in there being crazy and, and we're not going to, we're going to operate under safety and, and do what's um what's best in the order of safety and getting the package delivered but also like we're not going to let timing be an issue that we're going to go in there and we're not going to run up and down the aisles and and push other customers out of the way because we're all wearing our drone up stuff and we're in a walmart and it's very easy to see whenever we're in there so how we conduct ourselves with walmart uh, as a partner and um, a customer as well too so i think it just gives us another opportunity to raise our own standards and benchmark along the lines too what do you think the community acceptance has been where you've been so far? Um, I think for the most part, it's been pretty, um, pretty, pretty widely accepted. I mean, obviously, you're not going to make everyone happy all the time. I mean, I think if uh, if we if, if someone figured that out, I think all of us sitting here, if we if, if we could find a way to make everybody happy all the time, we'd probably be in different lines of business. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, we'd probably have the have a, a couple of winning lottery tickets already and everything. Um, but I think um, especially with we've done a great job of reaching out to community and like we listen. I think that's one of the things is if we uh, get some negative feedback that we listen to them and try to educate. I think that's the other part is going into uh, areas um, and educating on what national airspace is all about. I mean, yeah, you own a house and it's your house and your property, but once you get off the ground, that this national airspace and like having people understand that. And, and if there's really that big of an issue, like we'll, we'll work to solve the, uh, solve the problem and make sure everybody's happy about it at the end of the day. How about you, Chris, from community? So I know you, cause you do a lot of events and I see that you spend a lot of time, uh, you know, traveling the country. Yeah. They're doing those sorts of things. So, yeah, I think, I mean, first of the customer service piece, I mean, like the same way I need to understand what I'm asking my employees to do when we set up a station, we got to know what our customers need, what they expect from us. And you're exactly right. The only people that can give us a true understanding of how we're doing is the customer. And for us to deliver that service the way that you want us to, we got to know what you're doing out there. We've got research projects in California. We knew time is of the essence. So, if we, you know, all the orders we have on the shelf, we are on the bench. We just, hey, those can wait till tomorrow. Let's let's prioritize this one because X, Y, Z. Um, and as far as community engagement goes, I mean, it's like back when I was starting in 2014. If I was standing out in the middle of a construction project with a DJI Phantom, you know, people people know me because I always wear shorts. I'm out there in shorts and a polo. This was in Florida, so I might have been in flip flops. I don't know. But if I'm sitting out there with a drone flying over a property, it generated a lot of interest. And you have people come up, "What are you doing? Are you supposed to be here? How do you do that? What are you doing with those photos? That type of thing." So back then, it was more education to sort of prevent all the different caveats and the negative connotation that used to be there with drones. Are you spying? Are you doing this? Now it's like, hey guys, you don't have to do this manually anymore. You can send a drone out there and do it. It's not replacing your job. It's actually just augmenting it and keeping you safer. Like the linemen that we support, for example. Um, you know, They don't have to climb those poles anymore for every single thing to see if it's a flash insider. You just stay in your truck, be safe, and send your drone up there. And so I think people are finally in the community are finally seeing that that true value. It's keeping officers safe, it's keeping citizens safe, it's keeping line people, construction, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, if we're gonna do that, you gotta educate, you gotta get out there in the public, you gotta talk about it, show you know, show those successful use cases and talk about the failures, right? But, you know, rosy colored glasses are only as good as, you know, as far as you can throw them, I guess, but you gotta be able to talk about both the positives and the negatives, but it's really about educating what these drones are doing and robotics in general, or AAM and, and all of that. Yeah, that that dog actually pr looks pretty scary. If it had teeth, I think that uh, people would be more scared. But now, with since it doesn't have any teeth, it seems like kids love it. It probably has higher acceptance because everybody acts like they want to pet it. 
you know, the biggest challenge we see is people are like, oh, can you kick it? What happens if you kick it? And I'm like, yeah, I'll show you what will happen. But one of these days, these robots are going to fight back. <laughs> right. i got to be its friend. I can't, I can't be known as the guy that kicks robots. You know, so. Well, um, so there's a couple of things there uh, particular that, that you uh, brought up, Grant. And it applies to both of you, but I find it interesting. So we have a couple of classes. Uh, one I'll talk about it has to do with safety. And so in OM, a lot of manufacturing in OM, logistics and supply chain. And we taught, we have a class, a safety class, and we teach, you know, how, what do you do to meet OSHA requirements? Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and more and more, as we get larger and larger drones, mm -hmm. we have more and more. I don't know of a case. I do know of a few injuries, but I don't know of a case where there's been a death yet. Um, talk a little bit about safety. Now, I know very well about drone-ups because you're, you're following aviation protocols mm -hmm. and what you do. But talk a little bit about the importance of safety protocols and what you do to, to meet those. So then when OSHA shows up, you say, here's my records, and yeah. you know, here's what you do. Um, I don't have all the answers for that. Um, obviously, I mean, it's a little bit outside of my uh, my purview and everything, but I know, like, from being on the train side, I mean, we definitely have checklists. We have checklists that we go through. I mean, everything in the in the hub, I mean, going through pre-flight, post-flight, during flight, uh, all the different checklists that we're going through to make sure we're staying safe and operational. Um, we've actually discussed a couple times and, and even potentially even trying to bring in OSHA as uh, something we do in our training um, or whenever our training, our flight engineers. I mean, it's something that we discussed and like what we could potentially do with that down the road too because um, where we're doing our training right now in Virginia, we're working with um, a college there that they have a, a very strong advanced manufacturing background where they, they incorporate OSHA um, to some of their training with advanced manufacturing. So it's something that we're discussing on how we can implement that and tie that in as well too. Um, but we are making sure we're following all those different protocols within the hubs and, and during flight as well too. So we're looking at different areas and how we can implement that and, and really key in on those a little bit more. Yeah. That, at, have either one of you had an OSHA? Um, you probably wouldn't on the size, but don't have, does they have an OSHA inspection? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure off that because because uh, that's a little bit outside of mind with uh, the actual operations of hub operations. Uh, but I have not heard exactly. I mean, I'm, I'm, I could find that out later, but uh, I don't. Well, know if it talking. hasn't, I know it's coming. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Once, I'm sure we probably they, have, but I, I don't know. Once they exactly. see it, I, I know yeah. we'll we'll see it. Yeah. How about you? Have you had any interaction with that? No, I mean nothing with with OSHA, but I mean you know safety goes all the way down to to the back of the house on your operations. It's not only how do you safely fly the drone, but how do you safely work on the drone? I mean, if you've got a you know forty pound drone with spinning propellers, and you've got to test the IMU, and you hit the wrong button on that controller, and those props start spinning, you know, no matter how big your workbench is, you're not going to get away from that thing. So you know safety and, and all your processes, your SOPs, even from you know picking products on the supply chain side. I mean, you know, it sounds silly, but you have a lot of these larger drones that are up there that are sensitive electronics or up on shelves. How do you safely store and, and coordinate all of that, open the boxes of them, test them without accidentally spinning the props on something next to somebody or, or in the bench or whatever. Yeah, so the, the safety piece, that's a good point. The checklists, obviously, are very important. Um, of course, they're only as good as when people follow checklists. <laughs> yep. So um, talk a little bit about you know the whole HR and the leadership piece associated with that. So you've, you've set up all the best procedures in the world, but about the kind of things that you do to reinforce um, procedures, both to uh, you know increase to you know to optimize your efficiency, but also for safety. So drone up, I know, has those. But what kind of what kind of QA checks and leadership pieces? Do you um, I mean, I think it starts. I mean, it starts always from the beginning with training. I mean, we we rep we repeat uh, repetition and go through it um, over and over. I mean, we do tons of extra training, extra flights to make sure that we're going through it. Um, our sign off and check um, checklists and um, check ride system that we're doing as well too. Um, we continue to go through that, uh, and then it starts all the way down to our hub leadership. I mean, we have hub managers and um, shift leads that make sure we go on uh, and they're signing off and double checking all their employees. Uh, we have, like I mentioned, our, our training we have in the academy and our training we have in Virginia. And then we also have regional training facilitators that make sure that they're checking and signing off. So we have um, redundancy and uh, uh, extra precautions uh, going through that um, 
um, Robert Dunson, there's another word I was just went blank on, I think. But we continue to go through that, like we talk about leadership, and then all the way up to our market leaders and stuff. <laughs> so um, a lot of different ways that we go through that to make sure with leadership and um, and ensuring that everybody everything is getting checked off and make sure that everybody is prepared. Um, and even, so even if there's uh, we don't have live orders, or we're doing other test runs to make sure that we are uh, up and sharp on our, our training. I guess sharp is not the best. Yeah. Talking about propellers and but, stuff. Like, yeah. well, I, I saw a great best practice. So we had we had a partnership with Starting Up. They were doing some uh, things uh, last year with football and came mm-hmm. out and did a delivery and some other things. But I saw a crew briefing, mm-hmm. which is yeah. quintessential aviation, mm-hmm. right? The crew brief, whether, you know, when I was air traffic controller, when I fly, when all, all of that, there's a brief. And so I saw that, and it always included a safety piece. Yep. And remember this, this, and this. So. Yeah, definitely operational risk assessments every time. Um, anything we run through those, make sure um, our pre-flight and um, uh, functional flight tests, doing those beforehand and everything. So making sure we're staying on track with those. And, and like check weather, um, the rest of the surrounding area, which is, I mean, I'm sure, I mean, y'all, y'all do all them too and everything, especially working with police and, and fire and, and first responders. But uh, continually do those throughout the day. I mean, because <laughs> weather changes, and, and then operational. Um, if there's any other, as we operate in different areas, being closer to traffic, high traffic areas, like different peak times, all that sort of thing. Make sure that we're up to date on when those are happening. And I can speak firsthand too. I mean, good operations management comes from the top down, the leadership side. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned it yourself, Rich. But I've talked to Tom, mm-hmm. you know, founder, CEO, grown up, and it, you know, he he exudes that safety and, and just sort of that that cool, calm, methodical approach to everything. Uh, Will Stavangia, one of their one of their yeah. main, you know, uh, I'm not going to say official title, but he's sort of the mad scientist behind all their products. I mean, everything is safety focused. Even how they delivered, we we did some repairs and maintenance for them a long time ago when they were first getting started. Even the way they delivered the equipment, the way they track those assets, each motor ID, each motor arm, I should say, has its own motor ID, so you can track that down. If there is a failure, which there hasn't been one that I know of, you can at least track that down at the component level. So I I can speak firsthand to to Grunt's focus on that, on the safety piece. And we really appreciate that. We track all of our stuff by serial so that we can go back to the manufacturer and say, hey, this is what happened with this item. Go and research it and, and prevent it from happening again. Yeah, there's been a couple of manufacturers that had unexplained power loss mid-flight. And, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so being able to to send that, and we know who we're talking about, but to be able to send that back to the to the manufacturer and say, hey, you know, here's, here's the two, and here's the exact thing. So. We talked some, though, Chris, about the, the training at UVT because you do something uh, similar. Obviously, that, you know, hit the wrong button, have prop spin, that's bad. Yeah. So what do you do for that to, to train a leader? That, yeah, so I think it's it's all about getting, we call it stick time or just time at the bench. How do you understand that? I mean, you can go out and, and get your 107 and study all the regulations you want, but that doesn't mean you know how to actually fly the drone. It doesn't mean you know how to actually manipulate the drone. Doesn't mean you know what an IMU is and a gyroscope and an accelerometer and, and how important that those critical components are. So a lot of it is just finding other more or, or at least recruiting more experienced technicians to come on and then they lead those newer technicians. Um, and it's always about in, interfacing directly with manufacturers, factory certified training. All of our technicians are factory certified, so they hear from the experts on exactly what this component is. You know, what is a, a PDM to one manufacturer might be a PU to another or a product, you know, power distribution manager power distribution unit, that type of thing. Um, just ensuring that you're using those same SOPs across the board, whether you're working on a DJI Mavic or a, a Watts Innovations Prism Sky, an IMU is an IMU and a propeller, you just gotta know how they all interface together um, and really kind of setting those SOPs. We also do a service called pre-flight, so going back to that customer service component, every time we ship equipment to a law enforcement agency, we have opened that, we have powered it on, we have updated it, we have made sure everything is good. We do it the same every single time. Even as far as the customer service side, are all of our cases show up with little custom UVT oh, yeah, tags I know. on them? Yep. I'd cut that little UVT tag off yep, before absolutely. I could get into my RTK <laughs> You're right, this you week. Did. Yeah, yeah, we had to know. We had to make sure that it was all working and everything was up to snuff. And so, you know, operations management goes all the way to customer service. If that, if, if now that you know, now that you know as a customer, if you see that UVT tag on it, you probably hey, oh cool, they opened that up. It's good to go. It's ready to rock and roll. Well, I know the firmware's been updated, yeah. which anybody in this business knows uh, that. Every time you go out to the field, if you don't have, I can guarantee you, if you don't have any 
connectivity, any internet connectivity. Everything has to be updated. Absolutely. <laughs> You're driving back, and so that's a big deal. Absolutely, yeah. And it goes, you know, that's that's operations, right? I mean, the sales guys have done their job when they sell the equipment, but that's just, that's the first step of the process. The rest of it's got to be back of the house, you know, equipping that customer with success. And going to the training piece, too, I mean, that goes all the way to the end user, right? So we'll show up, especially if, if we're buying a, a more complex system like the DJI Matrice 300 or the Watts Prism or the Spark Fly F1, whatever it is. We'll go out there and actually sit there at the table with them like we're doing right now and say, okay, open that case. Okay, that's your that's your this, that's your that. Here's your handheld ground controller. There's so much training that happens even before you start those motors to understand what exactly it is that you're doing. Are you you know are you going down and in on that remote and, and that's sending a signal to start the motors or is it going to take off right when you do that? Just understanding what those behaviors are going to be before they happen is is critical, and that's one of the things that we do for our customers. It it's so it's so. Uh, interesting. You know, coming back to what you talked about, uh, Grant. So in the in the manned aviation world, you know, the, there's a cliche that you know all the regulations, <coughs> excuse me, are written in blood. It's because somebody died, and so you know we had a new a new rule. We haven't really had that happen, um, but you know everybody uh, will get all worked up when I say it, but it's inevitable we're going to have it happen. Just, I mean, if you start talking about millions of flight hours, which, by the way, uh, I'm telling anybody and anybody from the FAA listening would know, by far the safest platform, you unmanned UAS systems are by far the safest of all platforms that have ever flown. <coughs> by far. Now, some of that has to do with size, but a lot of it has to, we just don't have that many crashes, except students. They're pretty good at it. But yeah. Part of that, though, I think and we have a course in uh, Human Factors, and it focuses on the this human interface. And, and I, I can't think of many, other than what's happening in AI now, I can't think of very many uh, industries where the technology is constantly changing. And literally, from one firmware upgrade to the next, the way that you would program the flight and what you would do. Because, you know, all of us have uh, been there when we watched the student program it and then promptly fly it into a tree, and it did what they told it to do. (laughs) did exactly what they told it to do, but they either didn't set the home part. You know, they didn't do the workflow that you do with your system. But talk some about, uh, and and check this out, but about this, the, the training piece on this human machine interface, which is changing mm-hmm. so dramatically, because Skydio's example, I could never avoid obstacles manually, like it, like the AI does in that platform, right? But but I have to monitor and make things like, well, that stick, you know, those leaves aren't big enough. I have to make a different decision, and so talk a little bit about how you get some critical thinking skills going for that. Well, um, I'll say one of the things with that is, and going to another um, question we were kind of talking about beforehand and everything, is um, one of the things we started looking at is really, and and I've even been there too, and and kind of like the the sort of talent we're recruiting is um, talking about the human factor side of it. I might be going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but um, we're recruiting people to come work and be drone operators for us. And and to me, that's also going back to the teaching days is we were creating jobs that didn't exist. And it's now these jobs are here. And one of the things that we've also partnered with the University of Arkansas on is uh, we've developed a course and it's uh, called Drone Crew Fundamentals. Uh, that's been one of the biggest things as far as like human factors talking about that is um, you have a lot of single operators that are going out there and trying to do this, create their own businesses and go do residential photography or go do uh, instruction progression like they're doing on, the, on their own. So apart from that human factor side of it, um, we're working with the University of Arkansas to work on how can we incorporate some of those uh, soft skills like being in a team environment communication skills because a lot of times you're going out there flying a drone by yourself and taking those residential photos but now you're going to be doing that in a crew environment and then um, also communication leadership and um, and safety so i look into how we can incorporate those with um, aeronautical principles so aeronautical decision making um, crew resource management uh, for for the faa and then also uh, the operational risk assessment so i think that's how we're we're trying to work especially a, a great opportunity to have with the university of arkansas 
and that course is coming out, I think probably this month, that mm -hmm. we're going to finalize that. So it kind of bridges that gap with between technology, which we are relying on it. I think um, that's one of the questions we have is like about what is the issues with technology. I mean, I don't think it's an issue. I think it's an opportunity because we are relying on the, on the technology and putting so much faith into it because it is advancing so rapidly. Um, and I think one of the things we've talked about is uh, we – we're all, I think we're all planners, especially being a CEO and everything and, 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 and looking into the future. But the, the technology is changing so and advancing so quickly. We want to look two, three steps down the road, but we almost can't because we won't. I think this conversation we had at AVSI in Denver is we can only really stay one step ahead. And that's the best we can because the technology might take us in a whole new direction. We might need to turn on a dime to keep up with it. And really, it helps us to be safer and advance the, the industry as well because we're we are putting so much faith into the technology that's out there right now and it continues to make us better and we can rely on it and we can trust it yeah and so crew the that course the mm -hmm. the u of a course it has some pretty good things on aeronautical decision making but also in crew resource management mm -hmm. which uh this is a little backwards uh the, the way if you look at history and and uh how the fa has done things because the knowledge level part of the, the practical test standard, and I'm dating myself, it's actually a, a, a different acronym now, but those things to be a pilot to take the test, um, the knowledge level was defined by the FAA, but the industry has been defining what the performance levels are going to be, and that's really uh, a lot different and requires some thought, and everybody's got a little bit different view, and as long as you, it's outcome-based, if you meet the outcomes, it's fine, but there's one thing that, uh, uh, Chris, in your case, though, that I think is a little different, in that a lot of first responders, and uh, they, they're about, um, you know, like the fireman on the pole, there's the time to sit and run through checklists, a lot of times it's like they show up, launch it, look for something, you know, escape convict, lost child, whatever it is. And so how do you teach that? Because I know you do a lot of training when you go out and you do yeah. that. So you try to teach that skill on how you're safe and you make sure everything's operating. Yeah, I mean, one thing I'll, I'll hit on right now is you mentioned Skydio and the AI and the actual avoidance. But there's a, there's a critical component to understand is that is should I fly or should I not fly? The drones only going to do so much, right? So you got to make that decision. Is is this a deployable event, or should I really just kind of keep it in case and go back to what I know? And the, and the police officer that might be all right. I'm I'm running after this guy, and you know, mm -hmm. I I can't fly my drone. I got to go back to to boots on the ground. Um, you know, in, in electric cooperatives, it's hey, maybe we can't inspect that substation this way because the weather, or because the winds, or because of you know humans on the ground. Um, and and you know, law enforcement specifically, I think, is under the highest amount of pressure. Especially now that we're seeing these mature drone programs, I mean, you've got administration or, or command staff that have become accustomed to having that drone perspective. Or as a dispatcher, if I'm used to every time an out one call comes in, I can hit a button and send that drone out and actually see the house that may or may not be on fire. For some reason, if I can't have that, what do I do? You have to go back to your roots. Um, so I think as those programs become a critical component, never going to be really life or death necessarily, but as those programs become a critical component to those responses, We'll see some of that shift, but I mean, right now, a lot of these law enforcement officers and firefighters have never flown a drone. Some of them may have been on the force for the last 20, 30 years, may not even be the best with a smartphone, may not really have the, the dexterity or be accustomed to that. So a lot of it is just encouraging them, okay, when you're off duty or when it's a slow day at the firehouse, go out and just fly it. You don't have to chase anybody. You don't have to really even have a target. Just go out, cover it, maybe put it in addy mode, understand how the, how the environment impacts it, keep it in the hover that type of thing. It's, it's really encouraging them to go out and put that sick time on it. And that kind of goes to the repair and maintenance side too. You know, these are all lithium batteries. Lithium batteries don't like to sit for too long. One one of the biggest challenges we see is there's really two different kind of mentalities. Is you've got a law enforcement officer who keeps his drone in his car and it's kind of like today, it's almost 90 degrees outside. That car is probably 110 degrees inside. LiPo batteries do not like heat whatsoever. They're sitting out there, they're hot, they're fully charged. Maybe he doesn't deploy in the next two or three days. Then those batteries start self-discharging to keep themselves safe. Then, you know, crap hits the fan and he's got to go out and deploy. He starts to notice the batteries like, oh, I've only got 50% of that take off. So a lot of it is not only the crew resource management, but it's just, you know, it's called a, an HRM, the hardware resource management. It's how do you manage that hardware? And the way that you do that is you get out and fly often. So you're out there, you're exercising your batteries, you're keeping them happy, and you're getting that, that off 
elevators tick tock. And that's really the most critical component is just like the adrenaline rush when, you know, training officers on views, tasers, and whatever. It's just muscle memory. Get out there, fly, fly often, and you'll know exactly how to do it, whether it's an emergent situation or a PR marketing event that departments do. Yeah, you know, fire departments don't wait until they get a call to do maintenance on the fire truck, right? Exactly. They're always out there polishing it, cleaning it, changing oil. I mean, they're doing yeah. the maintenance every day to keep the equipment up so that when they do have to go, they can go and know it. If you don't use it, you lose it. Right. That's, that's the way that it goes. And, and a lot of it's just encouraging them to do that. And, and how do you manage it? Charging cycles, like how do you, and even for, you know, professional operators in the construction world, if you're not flying every single day, you've got this battery sitting there for a while, you got to know how to properly maintain them. And it all goes back to that to that go or no-go model you're talking about. The AI piece, and I, and I mentioned a little bit of that. We we support the largest state law enforcement fleet in the country. They're responsible for a very certain border in our, our southern area. I'm not going to say the agency's name, but I think you know who it is. They've actually sent their operators to us with district man, uh, maintenance. I think they call them DMM, district maintenance managers, maybe. But they're responsible for maintaining the aircraft. It's not a here's how you tear apart a DJI Mavic and replace that entire arm. It's making that go or no go decision. If you if you take that Mavic out of the case and there's a crack in the arm. Is it a big enough crack to sacrifice safety and security of the airframe? If it is, that aircraft's got to go out of service. We've got to move to the backup unit. It's making those decisions to not only, well, I guess, not necessarily do those field repairs, but to make sure you're always flying an airworthy aircraft. At the end of the day, these are all federally registered aircraft, and they've got to be safe to fly. You have to know, you have to have the knowledge to make that decision before you even launch. Well, and the FAA is, uh, you know, it's it's all outcome-based. They don't tell you how to do it, but I know because grown-up has a similar thing to what you were talking, but you, you've got to build your, you've got to figure out your own reliability. So if, um, you know, kind of the way the FAA works is nobody's going to come, the inspector's not going to come to you and say, hey, I want to see how many charges and discharges you had from that battery, and then I want to see, you know, the probability curve of all your batteries and so how you know when to replace them. But if one loses power, falls on a house or something else, then they want to see it. Mm -hmm. And so now I've seen the maintenance reliability schedules that Grown Up is using from theirs, um, and it's it's pretty robust. And you know, hiring A and P's, which is a whole other we could do a whole other podcast why that doesn't make any sense. But the 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 point is people understanding the maintenance piece about that and what they do. So talk to me a little bit about, because you've got some piece in that training about, it's even in the one that U of A did, it's a piece about, you know, the whole safe thing, but one of them is the equipment, right? Mm -hmm. And so you look at the equipment and how you make decisions before you go. Yeah, I mean, we have our, our regular um, regular operations. I mean, making sure the aircraft is airworthy, ready to fly. I mean, uh, ready to fly whenever we take it out there. Um, but we also have um, hired maintenance technicians that we have that their specific role is to work on maintenance with the drones. We have them uh, at our headquarters. We have them uh, across the country at, in all of our uh, different markets. Um, but also, I think one of the things with that technology issue on there, too, like not, not issue, but the opportunity is uh, we, we are continuing to implement uh, newer drones. And, and I think a, an opportunity for us is we continue to stay in our warranty and everything too, so we can rely on that that partnership uh, with our our manufacturer, our drone manufacturer, and working with them. So if we have any issues outside of, um, like you talk about that sticker and everything like that, like if it's something that's too deep, we can work back with our manufacturer and have them work on it and everything too. So we have that extra extra level of reliability and safety in there that we're guaranteeing that with our partnership with our manufacturer too. So I think that's one aspect there. But yeah, we have our regular day-to-day -day operations, make sure that we're the drone is ready to fly and be in the air on a, on a regular basis as well. And there's a huge operations piece to that too. I don't think people understand that you know, making that decision for, for the state law enforcement agency to pull that aircraft out of service, that's all operations. Now, what do you do with it? You've got a, you've got a quote, dead or, you know, non-airworthy aircraft. Do you send it to the manufacturer? Do you send it to the drone unit at PBT? Do you just dispose of it and say it's too old? There's a huge operational component to that. We've even got some fleets that use us for full fleet management where we've got a whole aircraft sitting at our shop ready to go. So if they have an outage, they call us, they submit a ticket, we send them an aircraft. But now operations is everything. You have to track that new aircraft that's going out to the customer. Warranty clock starts. You know, maybe it's a protection plan coverage or whatever. Uh, you know, number of hours. How many hours did it happen? It went out. Now we've got that dead aircraft coming back to us. We have to check that in. Log the serial. Log the FAA number. 
you know, the call sign, whatever, and do that work and then do that swap at the end. So to kind of bring it back to the, to the operations management side, as soon as you make that decision and, and really on the day-to-day, there's a huge operational component to operating a successful drone for your robotics fleet. And, you know, Drone Up, I'm sure, has an N plus one model with that an extra drone sitting around somewhere. How do you track all of that? How do you make sure the drone that your hub team is using that morning is the right drone to use? It wasn't flagged yesterday by, you know, technician number seven who's now off today. There's a huge operational component to tracking that and, and keeping your fleet fresh. Yeah, so, you know, in, in manned aircraft, that's the first thing that you, uh, or not the first thing necessarily, but one of the things you have to look at. So you're going to look at those squawks. And the squawks are, you know, yesterday a guy said, I don't don't like the way something feels or this failed or whatever and maintenance has to sign that off and if maintenance hasn't signed it off and you don't take the airplane and it's the same kind of thing it's there's this continuation and so the way that the you know we do that the way that we go through that the, the process is very similar to how we've always done it one of the things I think um, that is um, growing is this the new concern about cybersecurity? And I know both of you, that's not necessarily a big piece, but you have some. But, um, you know, this is going to be the ch- whether you're an operations manager, even you don't have to be an IT person. If you're the ops person that's uh, in a manufacturing facility, you need to know at least enough that your experts are doing the things that you're not going to, or certainly if you're working for an electric company, right? Mm-hmm. That nobody's uh, able to get to your grids and, and you're in charge. Is there any, uh, do you see anything in the future on the cyber piece you think that, let's say, short term and long term in the drone space? Government's already started talking about it. There's already some standards there. But I mean, what kind of things do you think are going to happen? And is there any training that's required? Yeah, I mean, talk about being able to do a whole separate podcast episode on cybersecurity. You and I had lunch today, and that was pretty much the primary topic. I mean, I think, you know, these are all connected devices. I mean, you've got a smartwatch on. I've got one. I don't know. I can't tell if Grant's got one, but we've got all kinds of connected devices. We have a microphone right here that's taking my voice. What if somebody overseas is analyzing my voice and they can use an AI to make a phone call like me, right? So cybersecurity is everything. It's only going to get more and more um, important, I think. You know, in my world, one thing right now is a focus on country of origin. Where did the hardware come from? But truthfully, at the end of the day, that doesn't mean anything. You can go and, you know, take uh, take Putin's own drone that he's got in his back desk and go fly it somewhere. And as long as that data, whether that it's a micro SD card or a data link, isn't compromised, that's a safe drone to use, no matter how you slice it. Um, I think that there's going to be, when you focus on AAM specifically, now you're going to have, you know, potentially a, a an uncrewed carrier of people, right? So you've got people sitting in a in a drone, if you will, being flown around. They're not in control. Somebody else is in control. What if that data link gets compromised? And now you're whoever that is, that mal actor now has control of an aircraft that's carrying people. So cybersecurity is as simple as that DJI Mavic that an electric co-op is flying over their substation, all the way to, you know, large uh, delivery drones, mothership models where you've got a drone up in the sky that's got other drones flying into it. No matter how you slice it at whatever scale, cybersecurity is key. And, and really that data residency, that data custody and control, it's a big conversation we have at law enforcement is, you know, I've got a micro, where does that drone store my media? If I'm, if I'm photographing a fatal crime scene or a fatal crash, where does that media go? And it's right here in this micro SD card. I'm going to hand this to you. That is now in your custody and control. I am free from all liability. You've got to take that media and understand the importance of protecting it. And it's less about what captured it, right? So there's cameras everywhere all over this building. What's going on with that data? You got to know where that data is going. You got to protect it. Yeah, I don't know about much more I could add to that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is one of the deals. I mean, the cybersecurity aspect of it, the privacy issues. I think it's always going to be a growing concern. And I think one of the other things we're talking about with like in the community is, I think it goes back to education and making sure that uh, we can educate the the local community that we are not taking pictures of you. We're not it's like storing that anywhere like if we're if we're on a drone delivery and we're using the camera like we're not recording to um, take pictures of your backyard and people out in the swimming pool and all that sort of thing so i mean i think that's going to be a continual issue but just i think it goes back to the education piece and like working with the community to make sure that they understand how we how everything operates and everything and giving them the best uh, the best answers we can which i mean it's going to continue to change and evolve i mean as things get more technologically advanced and and 
everybody, like you're saying, with smartwatches and stuff. I mean, everybody, everybody's becoming their own IT expert, like mm-hmm. especially working with uh, Apple products and things like that. And you just like you, you're interconnecting them, and it's all out there right now. So yeah, I, I think mean, even before I was in drones, I was in cybersecurity. I was an IT manager and director for a FDIC regulated bank. So we had, you know, back then it was I'm, I can't remember what it was before an SOCT type two. I don't know what it was, but lots of audits on that you know running phishing phishing tests right i mean at universal i'm sure you guys every now and then will get some sort of cyber security exam yeah mm-hmm. it's as simple as like uh, we're going through a mortgage process right now i'm not going to say what bank but they're, they're great but you know they're like oh yeah just send me some pictures of your id i'm like no i'm not going to email those to you you have like a portal i could upload that to i'm not going to send you my actual id or my social security number now i don't know if that's because i'm former bank security and i'm like i know that you have a tool that would prevent that going through email or if it's just a, a natural distrust of that of that data but um yeah it's super important and i think as far as the education goes you know from an operations management side you know my employees i can put them through this phishing test and i can i can sign up for some of those programs where they'll send a fake phishing email and see if somebody clicks on it if they do maybe we send them some you know, little little training components and how to identify that. I get questions all the time. I'm I'm also our IT guy as well as bottle and toilet washer and taxpayer. But um, you know, I'll get questions all the time. Hey, we got this invoice from Best Buy Geek Squad. Did you did you sign up that? I'm like, no. And they're like, well, it's in our accounting mailbox. Is it legitimate? And I'm like, what's the domain? And they're like, you know, Best MX one two seven four dot JP. I'm like, just delete it. That is a that is a phishing exam or that is a phishing test. I should have given you a test. So, um, you know, it's, there's a lot of that going on right now. It's in our personal lives and our professional lives. And drones are just another connected device. I mean, my my car when I drove here, it's a it's a Ford. It's got the lane setting. And what if somebody could go over the internet and take control of my car now or a Tesla that's self driving? It's everywhere. We just have to go to the community groups. Community guys understand that we're protecting that data. They got to trust Drone Up. They got to trust University. Trust us. Trust their bank whoever, but it's then the onus is on us and how do we protect that data? What what controls and SOPs do we put in place to prevent it from being out on the on the dark web or the internet? Yeah. Yeah, and, and it we kinda went full circle because a lot of that's about community mm-hmm. trust, right? And what they think about that, which is kind of unique in this space. Mm-hmm. Um not completely unique. I mean other industries when they build a factory or they build but most of them uh you know, come with a lot of jobs. Mm-hmm. So it's, it it kind of makes the pill go down the easier if you say, hey, we're going to bring a thousand jobs to this community. You build this factory over here in your backyard. Not quite the same, not quite the same in, in this industry. But but in the case of Drone Up, though, you're telling people, well, you can order ice cream yeah. uh, and have it delivered in 15 minutes if you want to. And so there's there's a trade off there, too. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the deals we had the other day, um, I got the opportunity. We were we were filming commercial or something like that, and I think the the community aspect. I mean, I think the acceptance. I think it was one of the questions you asked about, like um, about advanced the AAM and and some things to think about for the future. Is it's really the acceptance of it, and it wasn't until we were filming a commercial the other day, and we were here in Bentonville, ground store one hundred, and we have Faden Field, and there's planes flying over and everything, and. They were trying to film, and they're like, "Wait, we got to hold on and pause because the plane flying over." And you hear it and everything, and and they made the comment. They're like, "Yeah, you don't really care about hearing a plane like that fly over, but you get really upset when you hear a drone. People get real upset when you hear a drone." I think it's just one of the deals that we we're so early on, like we're still early on, and it's it's a new thing, and and outside of the novelty of just having like. Um, ice cream or something delivered. I mean, there for a while, one of the top items was uh, double stuff Oreos and stuff that we had, that we were delivering thing. But really, the the other side of it is really whenever you're in a pinch, like especially if you have um, you're a single mother at home and you have two sick kids or you have one sick kid and you don't want to get both of them in the car and run to the store, you can get something delivered to your doorstep and, and get that medication. You don't have to get your kids in a car and buckle them all up and doing all that sort of thing but uh, also i mean even thinking about that outside of it and, and my the example i use all the time because uh, even though we're in the day of drone delivery and uh even delivery with walmart i still like to go in i, I guess i'm kind of old <laughs> i still go in and to the store and buy stuff because usually i'll go in and buy five other things but i have my list of things that i was told to go get mm-hmm. and i'll always forget something even though it's on the list right there 
but I will gladly pay, pay that three ninety nine, <laughs> so yeah. I don't have to get out back in the car, go park, and deal with traffic on the way there, and also so my wife doesn't know <laughs> that I, I forgot something. Yeah. So that that three ninety nine is definitely worth <laughs> it to make sure that she knows I didn't forget <laughs> something I was supposed to get. So I mean, I think that aspect of it too is one of the deals that just getting the acceptance of it across the board. So speaking of the delivery thing too, I was <laughs> talking to my wife and I was like, babe, why don't you do grocery delivery? And she's like, well, I just want to make sure I get the freshest stuff. And so I'll go with her. And she's like digging through the row of cream, you know, because the older ones are on the front. Mm-hmm. So she'll find that real fresh one. But for a delivery guy, they're just going to go up and grab it yeah. and throw it in the basket mm-hmm. and then send it with the drone. So there is that piece to it. And I was, I was going to say something about the training aspect, but I just, I think I just lost it. But, um, oh, I got it. So going back to the training on sort of how do you manage your fleet and all that kind of stuff. We had an agency there. I think they're up in the Pacific Northwest, so kind of. California, you know, kind of a little bit more of a West Coast privacy feel, and they actually had to prove to a citizen that they weren't looking at the pool in the backyard of, of this residence when, in fact, they were chasing somebody that had ran from them. And so because of their SOPs, because they could prove, hey, part of our SOP is, you know, when we're flying to a scene, our camera's at, you know, it's either at you know, maybe Zenith or mm-hmm. it's straight, up, straight in front or whatever. That's our SOP piece. we got to train on that. But they also used a piece of software that was able to show and replay that flight to show where that payload was actually pointed. And they actually had to go to court because they, the citizen pushed hard and they were able to replay that flight and show the judge or jury or whatever it was, our payload was pointed at you know 40 degrees per, per SOP while we were on scene when we were returning home that our, our, that, uh, our camera pointed at or Zenith or whatever. So going back to SOPs and the importance of training to that, it can go as something as simple as privacy concerns or being able to show, it's like the FAA, as long as you can prove that you weren't being reckless and that you weren't doing anything knowingly malicious, you're probably going to be okay. You just got to be smart about it. Well, and that <clears throat> that privacy piece on community acceptance is, is a big a big deal. But the other, let's shift gears for here in the last closing minutes about the regulatory piece. So everybody that spends any time in this business knows that there's two things that are going to be key to the viability of delivery or others. And the first one is BB loss beyond visual line of sight. And the second one is flights over people. So tell us a little bit about your take about, you know, what's the challenge and left for us to do that. And we'll start with you. Well, and I might be, because regulatory and compliance is definitely outside of of my purview with community and, um, and workforce development, but I mean, I might be a little bit naive on it, but I, I think it's an opportunity to partner and develop the industry. I mean, because I know, like you're talking about, there's public hearings right now, and there's all sorts of, I mean, the FAA is looking for feedback, but I think it's an opportunity for us to partner and help shape the industry, like shape the future. Because we're going to work, we can work together with the FAA and help develop those partnerships and, and bring them a book of work and show them how we've done it safely and operated safely so they can help influence what future looks like, future uh, laws and legislation they can what that looks like so that's my take and feel on it i mean i, I mean that's that's the best mm-hmm. i can say that i mean it's a great opportunity now to partner and and really not us versus them but it is we are all in this together and i think all i think all drone operating um, industry industry members are wanting to develop it because we all get to take a step forward if we're all uh, doing it in the best way possible so sure yeah, no, I think um, what DroneUp is doing is a, is kind of greasing the skids, right? It's showing that this can be done at mm-hmm. scale very safely. Now, they're obviously doing it with all visual line of sight flights, but, you know, at, at UVT, we've got a drone dock. It's up in our demo site in Michigan. It's it's deployed. It's plugged in. I could, on my phone right now, I could launch it as long as we had an RPEC on site. Um, so we're, we're kind of deep into that. We're using systems like Iris Automation and Cassia G. And it's interesting to me, too, that when you look at these waivers, they're like, well, what are you doing to detect manned aircraft? And we're like, oh. Like before we had the Cassie G, I'm like, I thought you cared about other drones. Like, no, we don't. As of right now, we just want to make sure you're not flying around a Bell helicopter or a Cessna 172 or whatever. So it's going to be a, a maturity, I think, of those requirements. You know, do we, in a certain airspace, do we care more about, you know, the, the Bell helicopters that are going back and forth for MetaFlight? Do we care more about Cessna 172s or prop dusters? Um, I think it's going to take showing not just the, the FAA and the regulators, but showing our customers, our end users, the electric co ops, the energy generators, the solar companies, the construction law enforcement you can do this safely one issue that we have right now is in order you know obviously we make money and we sell things and so in order to sell some of this technology we have to say hey for the time being you are going to need a person up on that roof they're going to be a part 107 rpec they're going to have the remote in their hand they're going to be piloting that aircraft quote 
while it's outflying autonomously, but eventually you'll be able to do that beyond visual line of sight. So we work with the several law enforcement agencies that have DFR or drones as first responder programs. Currently, they have to have a, a cop sitting up on top of that roof under a tent, sweating, freezing, whatever the environment is, swapping batteries, doing all of that. And they're literally doing that, A, to provide a service to the citizens, of course, but they're doing that to prove to their city, to their council, to their county, whatever, that this can be done safely. As soon as we're able to you know, cost-effectively deploy Cassia G systems or other manned aviation detection and drone detection systems, we're able to prove that it's safe, then those regulations are going to kind of loosen up a little bit and we're going to see those waivers come out. You know, you look at some of the manufacturers, there's a manufacturer of Skydio, they've got a 50-foot shielded waiver now. So as long as you're within 50 feet of the asset, you can get a DDoS waiver. That's great. That's progress. We can't fly all drones within 50 feet because they can't all avoid the obstacles the way they can, but that's just one step in the direction showing that it can be done safely and eventually it's going to become sort of a, a household thing, I think, in our industry. Yeah. So as, as we're wrapping, you know, we're kind of wrapping up, uh, let me ask both of you a question. Where do you think we're going to be? Um, and it'd be training, you know, new training requirements, new certificates, new technology. But where do you think we'll be five years from now and ten years from now? And and I would include all of advanced air mobility. So that could be the move to EV tolling. Uh, it could, you know, it could be the move to, there are already some uh, testing trials for some heavy lift cargo. We're talking 200 plus kilo cargo drones that are already going through certification. So where do you think we'll be, Grant, five years, ten years from now? Well, I think for the industry, I think we all want to be beyond visual on site. Um, many, many drones to one operator. I think that's going to be, a, I mean, it's a great opportunity for us to be there. Um, to me, like, personally, where I want to be, because, like, I'm, I'm looking right now and seeing how far we are away from a Walmart and everything, like, where I currently live and everything, and uh, want to be able to get that. But I think we're going to be in a whole new era. I mean, being able to operate beyond visual on site with multiple drones at one time, and I think that's going to completely change the game of what we're doing. Um, I think the heavy lift is going to be another big deal. I mean, because like right now we're limited to certain payloads, and and while I would, while I still go in, like I said earlier, I still go into the store. I would very much like to have a whole order <laughs> uh, delivered. I mean, a week's worth of groceries delivered in one one full swoop and everything. But I mean, I think in five, ten, fifteen years, we'll probably be there. Like we'll be there, and instead of having a, a if we get uh, grocery delivery to the house, like right now, like which we do, my wife does most of the time, everything, like it's a it's a trunk load that someone's still driving out that we'll be able to get all that in one quick package, probably boxed up and heavy lift drone, bringing it beyond visual on site in, in one load. So, yeah, I think for me, I mean, I would say within the, within the next five years, I think we'll see a, a percentage of law enforcement agencies having a drones as first responder program. I think as a 911 operator, I know I know the stressors of answering that call, and the only information I have is what that seven-year-old girl is giving me about her father that just collapsed in the kitchen. Is he breathing? No. Is he, you know, does he have a pulse? She doesn't. She or he doesn't know how to check that. So I think in the next five years, we're going to see a, a percentage. I don't know what it's going to be. It kind of depends on how the technology evolves, but I think we're going to see drones as first responder at scale. I think there's going to be, I would say, probably in every, you know, large municipality, you're going to be able to call 911 within a certain radius of a police station or a fire station, and you're going to be able to walk out your front door and look up, and you're going to see red and blues in the sky. That's going to be a dispatch operator, or it's going to be a fully autonomous, and that dispatcher is able to you know, not have to worry about that. I think we're going to see drones as part of what we call run cards. So you know, for a structured fire, that usually involves a battalion chief, an ambulance, you know, an engine, a truck, a pumper, whatever that run card looks like for your city. I think we're going to see a drone be a part of that. I think it's going to become a just a standard response i think probably within that same time frame maybe a little bit past it because there's obviously life and safety uh, advantages to that i think we're going to see drones in docks at substations so when you have it when your power goes out you call up they're like yep we already know about it our SCADA system alerted us to it the outage is over here a drone has flown down that line and found the storm path or found the ice damage or the squirrel that got zapped from the machine on the line or whatever um, i think we're going to see that within the next five years my hope is in the next 10 to 15 years we've got fully self-driving cars we've got vehicles that are talking to each other we've we've got obviously that's ground not aam necessarily but i think we're going to see fully self-driving vehicles i think we're going to see an amalgamation of you know aerial robotics drone uh, ground robotics sorry all of that coming together to provide a service maybe drone up's going to have ground vehicles self-driving cars and aerial vehicles right there's not always going to be the ability to drop a drone or, or you know fly a drone and drop a payload but 
I think in the next 10 to 15 years, we're going to see probably a fully connected infrastructure. It's going to be limited because, again, through the adoption, even my car self-centering is a little terrifying, so i got to get used to that. But in the next 15 years, we're going to see uh, an immense connection between the human factor and, and the robotic factor. Yeah, that, you know, one of the things that uh, I think is going to be interesting to see is how the mode, so right now, you know, out of coming out of transportation, security and homeland, some other things. When we went into multimodal yards, so you had multimodal containers that got off the trucks and, you know, would go onto uh, a train and then they'd break them down and put them into unit load so that ULDs would get on airplanes. And so I think we're going to add modes. And that's interesting. Yep. Uh, uh, the change. And if I think of a place that's obviously, you know, for urban air mobility, uh, this idea makes a great sense. But in rural places like Arkansas, I'm looking forward to the day. I use this example a lot, but if you ever if you ever go from Fayetteville to Jonesboro, there's no good way to get there. You gotta go south for an hour, go all the way across the state and go north for an hour. And if you had a two hundred kilo drone that could make that, that would be pretty amazing. So I think it's pretty transformational. Well, I'd like to thank both of you for uh, your insights today. Um, and you know, if uh, and when we do this, if uh, you want, we'll put your contact information if somebody wants to ask you inf information uh, here as well. But it's been um, uh, enlightening for me to hear other people that uh, have some ideas that I hadn't heard before. So I appreciate you taking the time to do it. That'll be the conclusion of this uh, podcast, and we'll look forward. I'm going to uh, give it back to Karin, and uh, she'll take us out. So, Karin, thanks. Well, thank you, Rich, Grant, and Chris, for that insightful discussion on advanced air mobility. We would like to thank all of our listeners. And before you go, if you enjoyed today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on? Our goal is education and helping people improve their professional skills and knowledge to advance their careers and positive reviews help others learn about our programs. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.